Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them. And most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. And don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Eddie Cliff. Eddie is an Australian haematology registrar whose academic interests are lymphoma and health policy. He has been very active in public health campaigns and advocacy around issues such as GP co-payments and is currently doing a fellowship at Harvard working on the intersection of blood cancer medicine and public policy, doing research on pricing and regulation of drugs and cellular therapies. There's some really interesting stuff in this wide-ranging conversation, so don't miss out. Okay, welcome to Don't Just Read the Guidelines. I'm joined by uh, Eddie Cliff, who is a haematology registrar, currently working in America, but is uh, from uh, down under from Australia. Um, and um, I came across Eddie on Twitter as he commented on a post, which was really interesting. And I thought, this guy looks uh, looks interesting, nice observation. So I looked him up and yes, I my, my suspicions were confirmed. He is a very interesting, interesting person. Um, so hopefully you'll enjoy listening to this. Um, and all the way from Melbourne, Australia, welcome, Eddie. Well, thanks for having me on. I think you're my first guest from the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, that's a, it's a big honour, especially to be your first Australian guest. Yeah. Re- representing an entire hemisphere. Yeah, definitely. Not. Hopefully not your last. <laughs> if you can suggest anyone, please do. Please do. Um, so tell me about your career path so far, because you're a haematology registrar, but you're, off, you're, you're over in Boston, well, sort of over in Boston doing a PhD. Um, tell me how you got there. So I... Um... I didn't really know what haematology was, to be honest. I was doing my physician training, which in Australia, I think is quite similar to in the UK, um, where you do your kind of general postgraduate training and then you decide I want to be a physician and you do um, a couple of years and then some exams across, you know, we have a medical registrar, just like you kind of, um, the kind of jack of all trades type doctor in the hospital. Um, And through most of that time, I had done an honours research year in diabetes and I was very interested in public health and, and health policy. And I thought, great, endocrinology is going to bring together my public health and my clinical interests like diabetes. I still like diabetes, um, which is rare amongst uh, doctors. And, um, and I thought, you know, great, this is going to bring things together. And part of that, I applied to do a master's public health. And, um, and then I got rostered to do a second haematology rotation. And uh, I did a first haematology rotation in allograft and leukemia which I loved, especially the allograft part of it. But I had a bunch of leukemia patients just have really terrible, uh, not just terrible outcomes, but really terrible kind of disease courses. And I thought this specialty is just way too sad. And then my second haematology rotation, which which sort of happened randomly, um, was lymphoma, myeloma and CAR-T. And so, you know, the general outcomes were, were much, much better with perhaps the exception of CNS lymphoma. And um, the range of different therapies was, was amazing. We have a lot of bispecific trials as well as CAR-T, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And the range of, you know, I had a 16-year-old with lymphoma all the way through to, uh, you know, 80, 90-year-olds, of which we have plenty. And I just thought this is really um, an amazing specialty where you're talking about life and death with your patients, you're tailoring a, a treatment course to the specific patient and their priorities and their organ function and their disease and just the breadth of, of what's contained within hematology, um, I just sort of was like, wow, this is absolutely what I want to do. And, um, and then I thought, you know, do I still want to do this MPH? Um, is it still, uh, it has, you know, does it still fit with a career as a hematologist? And uh, is it still worth, you know, sort of dropping what I'm doing clinically and, and doing? And I ultimately um, decided that absolutely yes, because I, I still think that um, we have both a, opportunity and a responsibility as clinicians to kind of hear our patient's stories and then advocate 
um, for them and on their behalf to, to try and improve things, be that with the health system itself or with kind of these upstream um, factors. And, you know, healthy eating is, is still passion and still uh, food policy is still, uh, I think, incredibly important at a public health level. But that doesn't mean that issues around drug policy, issues around clinical trials, issues around access to medicines, uh, pre-malignant conditions, you know, there are a lot of kind of public health facing. And then, of course, we had VIT last year, um, which all are very much at the intersection of hematology and public health. And so that's a little bit of what I'm doing now. I just finished my master's of public health um, and I'm about to start a fellowship. And a lot of what that's looking at is the intersection of hematology and health policy. Okay. Um, I, I guess for just for me, just tell me about the Australian training. Is that because we do sort of a global hematology job, you know, we do a, not global, but um, we do everything. So transfusion, um, coagulation, et cetera. Is that the same for you guys? So the typical uh, hematology training pathway in Australia is four years, two years clinical and two years in the lab, uh, typically one to one, but, but can be two, two. Um, and indeed, that's everything from uh, MGUS to allograft, everything from transfusion to uh, hemophilia to um, thalassemia uh, to sickle cell, um, uh, the whole gamut. Um, to, obviously, it depends a bit which centre center and centres you train at. Um, but yes, amazing uh, the breadth we get to, to do. And what exams do you do? too many exams so um we have uh we have our physician exams which are so we I, i'm i'm not sure if you in the uk dual train with the college of pathologists and physicians yeah so i think it's probably pretty similar so we do our college of physician exams which are um written and clinical and then in hematology training you then do another about six exams uh everything from morphology to you know interpreting investigations how to run a lab um, confidence in intervals and in interpreting tests you know the whole gamut of what you need to be a hematopathologist as well as a hematologist is what the majority of people do it sounds really comprehensive because it sounds like i mean we we definitely get examined on the lab side of things but um more and morphology and and increasingly with service demands it it makes it even more difficult to get into the lab so and we really have five years of clinical training with a bit of lab interspersed but your system sounds really really neat actually and then the australian health system that's is that publicly funded absolutely yeah i think um so we we've got um in my very biased opinion uh the best that one of the best health systems in the world from that point of view in that we have a private health system that is basically designed to kind of soak up a bit of the hip replacement knee replacement um uh pneumonia type um package type care for um wealthier people and there are a lot of kind of complexities around the incentives that um, try and encourage people to take out private health insurance. But really, if you've got a complex problem, like almost any malignant hematology, um, uh, hematologic condition, then you are, you have access to world-class care in the public system. And I think that's something we're very proud of. Um, uh, and, you know, in many ways, so the, the, the kind of public health insurance uh, is called Medicare in Australia. And there's, a similar, maybe not quite as as um, as much of a passionate support as that the, in the UK for the NHS, but not not far behind in terms of how much uh, you know pathos it has in terms of elections and politics and and how strongly people feel about it. Which you know, obviously, I'm very pleased about that the public cares so much about about Medicare. But um, yeah, so we've got a very comprehensive public health system. We get access to many drugs you know for example talking about sort of cost effectiveness and and uh, what are called health technology assessment agencies which are the bodies that decide which drugs to fund in the uk obviously that's nice mm -hmm. um ours is the pharmaceutical benefits advisory council or pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical benefits scheme and i i think you know in terms of compromising and we might talk a bit more about this if we talk about trial design but but compromising between time to access how long does it take a novel therapy to come become available for patients with getting the best bang for the public's buck that is only paying for, for therapies that actually work i think we balance that fairly well 
um, in Australia, maybe still slightly on the stingy, just slightly on the stingy side, but um, and but but we do a much better job of not paying for uh, you know heinous prices that America pays or or a range of kind of therapies that it, that America happily pays for that I'm not super convinced do anything but 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 I think we have a much better uh, ability of teasing that out in Australia which is is good. I think you absolutely need that system that you know there's a regulation to approve the drug and then the system that, yeah. that assesses cost effectiveness because as a clinician it's very difficult to assimilate that kind of evidence for every single thing you treat isn't it and the nice summaries are brilliant and i assume that the the australian ones do a very similar similar way but you know the american physicians are left to fend for themselves with x y and z drug that's just been approved or accelerated approval so it's, it's an absolute nightmare and i think somewhere you mentioned that the Australian government was sort of trying to dismantle free healthcare, but I assume that was the last administration, perhaps not this one. Yeah, I mean, so the most, the one where I, I did quite a lot of advocacy work was the um, two, sort of three governments ago now, depending on how you count your terms. Um, we've just had a nine-year Conservative government that got kicked out. Our Conservative Party is confusingly called the Liberal Party. Um, and the first of three Liberal Prime Ministers was a guy called Tony Abbott, and his first budget tried pretty hard to undermine particularly primary health care, particularly um, GPs. Um, and although that particular piece of legislation, with a lot of advocacy and a bit of luck from our crossbench, did manage to get defeated, they did freeze the GPs' wages for many years, I, I want to guess about five years, uh, which obviously is effectively a paid decrease for our GPs who are already very underpaid. Um, and so I think that would be among one of the um, most cost-effective and most sensible health interventions our new government could do would be to invest more in, in primary care um, because that's something that the, the last government unfortunately really uh, deprioritised and really did not treat our, our GPs very well, which is, I, I think, a great uh, tragedy. What's the ideology there? Is, is, there, is it an ideology thing that they just don't like publicly funded in a big state? Because I think that's the impression I get from our government. I think there's a, definitely an element of that. I think they have to tread lightly because they know the public cares about Medicare. So they have to frame mm. it in a way that people don't think they're having something taken away from them. You know, I think there's a little bit of this creep of this wildly popular idea in America called cost sharing, which... Uh, any shred of health policy evidence that you look at tells you uh, it doesn't actually achieve what you want it to achieve. So cost sharing, the idea or co-payment deductibles in the US, um, there are lots of a lot, a lot more in the US than I had realized before studying there, basically means that if you, your surgery uh, costs $10,000, then you might pay $1,000 of that surgery. And it comes from this kind of economic principle uh, of moral hazard, which is the idea that if you give someone uh, more of an invest, kind of a, a vested interest in their own healthcare, a vested financial interest, that you might motivate them to change their behaviour. And where it works really well is in things like cigarette taxes, um, sugary drink taxes, um, or what are sort of probably called sin taxes. You know, when someone is is faced with a decision and maybe the the, the Coke Zero costs. 30% uh, less than the full-strength Coke, then we have pretty good evidence in health policy land that that, that helps. But I'm much less convinced that that it works when you, you're someone prescribed you lenalidomide for your myeloma. And, you know, in the US, you have to front up somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 US dollars for your first lenalidomide script. And unsurprisingly, a lot of people um, never pick up their first script of lenalidomide and come back with a you know, fractured hip or something because because of the impact of that cost sharing. So I think there's this false, what I believe to be false, allure of the idea that if we um, introduce more cost sharing, then both it, it will both, you know, it's a win-win for us as a government because it will save us money because it puts more of the cost onto the, uh, what's been labelled the consumer, uh, uh, and also will give them more ownership of their healthcare, which... Um, and, you know, basically, when you look at the data, what it actually does is it means that, it, you know, so say you do it in GP land, you, you increase, you, you put in 10, what they wanted to do is they want to put a $10 co-payment for any GP appointment. But the same thing's been tried in, in different places for emergency visit. And basically, what happens if you do that 
is that it does decrease the number of people who seek healthcare, be it GP or emergency, but it does not discriminate between the people who needed the healthcare and the people who didn't. So what you do is you get you do get a reduction in the people who, um, I'm sure you've seen them in ED, who've had neck pain for nine years and they decide that on Saturday at 2am they want to get their neck pain sorted out and probably didn't need to be seen in the emergency department. And so you get less of those people, but you also get less people, you know, a, a reduction in people who really needed to present. I'm sure you've seen plenty of those who've had night sweats for weeks and then they come in in DIC or, um, you know, we, we would have lots of examples of those or the myeloma patient who comes in and, you know, with, with really bad renal failure instead of when they first feel woozy. Um, uh, and they're the people who we want to be seeking healthcare and we want to be reducing barriers to, to healthcare. And, you know, even if you're so cynical that you don't think there's any value in health, it still doesn't actually save you money because those people then cost more to treat when they present with more severe disease. So, uh, I mean, I, I am pretty firmly, as I'm sure you can tell, against the idea of cost sharing um, with, with very few exceptions um, uh, because it, it just makes it harder for people without means to access healthcare and that's worse for their health and, and obviously worse for them financially. I'm I'm a big advocate for thinking about unintended consequences, and it sounds like that's something you you, you know you, you're really passionate about as well. Is it is it, is there anything is there anything there that you know policy health policy makes a, a will always have an unintended consequences? And then you've you've made a, a really interesting point about you know the the patient it it has this effect of stopping people coming to A and E with things that don't need to be seen, but it has that knock on effect of also preventing people who do. And it's the same with public health messaging in the UK. You know, only use emergency department for for emergencies well you know you're not the the 87 year old at home who's laying on the floor she thinks it's not an emergency so she doesn't call for help um it's it's really difficult to to account for those isn't it when you when you make policy but i think you need to think about that and i i, I seem to i seem to find that a lot of the big public health policies don't don't do that they don't think it through enough yeah absolutely there are some there's a sort of cavalcade of or a small group of American physicians who are dual trained as economists who do a, some really interesting work in this field. Um, uh, one of them is Marcella Olson, who does really interesting work around race and has run randomized controlled trials looking at the impact of, of race on healthcare. Um, another is a guy called Ziad Obermeyer, who's at UCSF, and he's a computer scientist as well as an ED physician and has done a lot of, of work on algorithms. Uh, whether it be for you know chest pain and cardiac event algorithms, or um, uh, you know looking at, at these unintended consequences, and the the other one that people may be interested to, to check out is a guy called Anupam Jenna, uh, who's, who's who's based at Harvard, who um, he does a, a lot of he's got a podcast as well um, called Freakonomics MD, but his research, um, his favorite paper of mine looks at. Um, uh, the bias that people have with regard to first digit. So if you're referred a 79-year-old who's had an AMI for um, evaluation for coronary artery bypass versus a uh, 79-year-old in 50 weeks versus an 80-year-old in two weeks were the groups that he compared. So the only real difference between those two groups is the number on the page and not their actual age. And very interestingly, um, uh, the group that uh, of 79-year-old and 50 weeks, um, of course, had got a lot less uh, coronary artery and a lot uh, bypass grafts and a lot more stenting than the group at 80 years and two weeks. Um, but um, uh, he then kind of goes on to, to use these, what he calls natural experiments to uh, to look further. And so he's looked at things like the impact of marathons on the amount of uh, time it takes you to get to emergency department. He's looked at um, the impact of cardiology conferences on uh, patients' outcomes when all the interventional uh, cardiologists are away at a conference. You know, really fascinating stuff like that in a really kind of methodologically rigorous way to look at a lot of these kind of unintended consequences type um, questions. So tell me what you're interested in with your PhD. So I'm not doing a PhD uh, yet, I, oh. uh, I hasten to say. I'm doing, um, I'm just sort of starting a post, well, what's called a postdoc uh, in the US because the US thinks that a medical degree is a doctoral degree. So right, okay. um, that sort of explains that. Um, so I'm, uh, I think it probably will end up being a pre-doc in my case, but it is on paper as a postdoc. 
Um, so I'm doing a um, research fellowship uh, in a group called Portal, which is about a program on regulation, therapeutics and law, which is about 30% lawyers, 25% epidemiologists and the rest are doctors, many of whom have dual or triple training across uh, law and or epidemiology and really looking at this kind of intersection of prescription drug, pharmaceutical policy, the FDA regulation and sort of every impact of pharmaceuticals and drugs on the health system and on patients, particularly in the US, but, but also with a kind of global outlook. And um, might sort of seem strange, you know, why would an Australian hemorrhage be interested in looking at the FDA and looking at the American regulatory landscape? But uh, one of the things I sort of came to realise the more I uh, read up and follow this kind of clinical trial space is that really the US market is so much bigger than any of the other markets. You know, Australia's market is 2% the size of the, U the US, as I suspect the UK's is somewhere around 7 or 8%. I don't know the exact number, but um, maybe 10%. Um, you know, much, much more than the US market. And so really, if you can get your drug um, or your therapy FDA approved, then your company is bankrolled. And if you can't, then you're in serious strife. Even if you can get kind of the next best thing which is European Medicines Agency or EMA approval um, so really what that means to sort of work backwards is it means that all the pharmaceutical companies want FDA approval so they all ring uh, in our in our world a guy called Richie Pazda who's the head of the FDA Center for Onco Center of Excellence for Oncology um, and they say how do I have to design my trial in order to get my drug approved and they have a typically off the record conversation they then sort of have a kind of tacit or implicit agreement about what the trial needs to, how the trial needs to be designed to get the drug approved. And then they go off and do their trial. And, you know, I think that that really is important to everyone in the whole world to understand because it really affects the clinical trials that we are enrolling patients on. It affects the data that we have to inform the decisions we make. And, you know, for example, in the case of myeloma, where that data is very, very messy, and I think a lot of that mess has to do with the FDA's move towards being uh, open to approving drugs based on phase two single arm studies, which makes it very hard to then compare treatment approaches or compare drugs, mm -hmm. compare treatment strategies. And so uh, I guess what I hope to do is build um work on with the you know expertise of this fantastic group uh looking at this kind of all these regulatory questions bring the little uh, amount of hematology knowledge i have to those questions and see if both we can kind of shine a light on regulatory questions through hematologic examples and use kind of regulatory understanding to better understand how we can improve the design and outcomes of clinical trials for hematologists and oncologists and for patients most importantly so will CAR-T be a part of that thinking? Is that, is that the plan? Yeah, so absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying very hard to, to get a CAR-T project working. It's quite hard because obviously in this kind of pharma world, a lot of things are kind of secrets and industry secrets about how things are done. So it's about, you know, the, the questions are, uh, I, I think it's really interesting. I suspect, and I would like to be able to show this with data, but I suspect that the people accessing CAR-T at the moment are... Um, privileged kind of wealthier urban people who have access to clinicians who know to refer to CAR-T early, who can get to a, a CAR-T centre, who can get their apheresis in time, who can get access to an active therapy to keep their disease at bay while their CAR-T is made, who can get access to the CAR-T in a timely fashion, which we saw is, is you know, really important when looking at some of the recent trials. And um, I suspect that 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 means that a very select group of people currently have access to CAR T, not just in the US uh, or the UK or Australia, but all over the world, where of course many countries don't have access. And one of the really interesting questions there is, should you know, is pharma the right choice? I think it's sort of partly largely been decided, but is pharma the right choice, or should individual universities, individual labs, be doing their own kind of DIY CAR T? Um, and I think the more we learn, the more we learn that it has to be a very strictly regulated space because not all CAR-T is made equal. 
just sort of the um, point we were discussing with regard to that meta-analysis meta um, in the British Journal of Hematology, um, equating the different CAR Ts, uh, perhaps not, not altogether helpfully. So not, not all CAR T is made equal is sort of the point I was um, getting distracted from. And, and I think that that means these questions are really complex and really interesting open questions. One of which is, you know, if you, if you make a new CAR T product and you want to um, jump in the second line DLBCL space, which is, um, you know, now has already got two CAR T products in it. Do you have to run a, you know, double blind placebo controlled uh, trial of your CAR T against um, AxiCell or LisoCell to show that it's non-interferior? Is that the bar that we're going to set because we know that no, no, you know, the CAR T products are not made the same, or will the regulator pick a different bar? And I think that's uh, genuinely a very tricky and important question because we want to ensure that if a new CAR T comes to market, that it is at, at least as good and hopefully better than the ones we've already got, but also um, that we want people to be able to, if they have a good CAR T product or any other product, that they have the uh, easiest way of bringing it to patients. You know, we, we want to, the perfect system is one that lets a drug or a therapy that works get to patient in the cheapest, fastest, and most efficient way, but doesn't let a drug that doesn't work um, get to patients uh, uh, at the same time. And, and I think that if you, you know, you've got the UK and New Zealand on one end and you've got the US on the other end, and I think ultimately, um, I suspect many clinicians in the UK wish they had access to more drugs. That's the impression I, I, I get at least. And I suspect um, that the US is wasting some of its um, copious healthcare budget on, on pharmaceuticals. And so I think it's about how do you kind of meet at the sweet spot in the middle and get the best things uh, and the, the, the best and snazziest new things available to our patients uh, as best we can. I think that's really hard to get there because you know, every time that some kind of accelerated approval has been tried or used, or even when we use outcome measures that are quicker to get to like pfs for example you know the cancer drugs fund in the uk the original cancer drugs fund essentially spent 1.26 billion pounds on drugs that had a median overall survival benefit of about two or three months you know it's, this is this is a whole systematic failure there that we've then used drugs that don't have good enough evidence i mean my feeling is that you're better to wait um Clearly, it's important to get drugs into clinic as quickly as possible. But the as possible bit is, you know, poorly defined, isn't it? It means, it, it, you know, is that as possible, meaning as safely as possible? So as quickly as possible to make it safe or as quickly as possible to, you know, make sure that we're using drugs that actually work. Um, you know, even when you look at trial data showing a three-month overall survival benefit and then you look at real-world data, those patients are very different. It doesn't always translate into real world benefit. So, you know, even if you eke out a tiny PFS advantage or eke out a tiny OS benefit, whether it translates is, is, is really debatable. So, I mean, certainly my feeling is that you're better to wait. You know, humanity's got a long time to go, hopefully, if we don't burn ourselves alive. Um, we've got a long time to go and, and making these incremental. We, if we're going to do all this work, we're going to put patients at risk in trials because that's what a trial is. It's a risk, isn't it? It's a calculated risk based on equipoise. If we're going to put these patients at risk, then we should be doing it properly and we should be looking at proper outcomes. And I think we've talked about the FDA. The FDA, FDA are in the driving seat there. If the FDA turn around tomorrow and go, right, you're not using surrogate outcomes unless you've got proof that they uh, relate to real outcomes, then uh, sorry, we're not going to approve your drug. Having said that, finding a good surrogate outcome in myeloma, for example, when patients live for 10 years is really hard. Um, so it's got to be disease drug specific, hasn't it? What do you yeah, think? I, I think I've said a lot of things. <laughs> I, I think I, um, I think, I think a lot of what you said is really spot on. I think the, the trick is, and, and it's, it's hard because if you ask the FDA, they will point to imatinib and ibrutinib and len lenalidomide and bortezomib and say, look at these amazing drugs that we got to patients earlier. And, you know, about those drugs, they're right. And if you ask a relapse refractory myeloma patient or a relapse refractory DLBCL patient or a, you know, relapse refractory ALL patient who's the first person to get 
uh, AxiCell or the two CLL patients that were in that beautiful Carl June Nature paper earlier this year where they've got, still got circulating CAR T cells 10 years down the track. You know, that's pretty amazing. And, and, and I looked after a patient who um, was on, you know, venetoclax is a bit of a Melbourne success story. Um, uh, came out of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute uh, and a lot of the, 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 the early trials were done in Melbourne, um, uh, many of them led by um, some of the haematologists I've been fortunate to, to work with. Um, uh, and um, so, you know, I, I've met some of the kind of phase one trial participants and, you know, it's, it's not every drug, as you say, it's a risk, but when you go from being in a position where you're, you're under, you know, thinking about a palliative care referral and, and putting your affairs in order per se. And then you, you know, I saw one of them who'd lived eight years um, with venetoclax. So, so I think it's a balance to say, we want to get the drugs that work really as fast as possible, because it, I think that's something that patients want. And I think it's something that clinicians want. And I think that uh, it's hard to, to, to emphasize the value, especially especially for some of these patients in, in dire situations and some of these drugs that really work, like CAR-T, bispecifics, venetoclax, imatinib. Um, but I totally agree with you that we have to know that what we're, we're doing is right. And when you look at some of the much more, you know, I think we're pretty lucky compared to our solid organ colleagues in that our drugs, uh, not always, but often uh, are either really work or they really don't. And in, in a solid organ malignancy, uh, my, you know, unin, you know, uninformed or more uninformed perspective is that they have a lot more of these drugs like serafinib or, um, uh, you know, uh, checkpoint inhibitors used in non-melanoma, non-lung cancer conditions where some of the benefits are really marginal. Um, and... It's hard because if you're a clinician and you have one patient who has an amazing response, then you're a believer in the drug and harder still if you're, I don't know if you saw recently, uh, one of the fantastic researchers in the kind of global oncology and oncology policy space is a guy called Bishal Gawali. And he had a recent paper which had a cohort of about 130 US oncologists, each making more than $100,000 a year from pharma. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if you want to open the whole can conflict of interest can of worms, but... It, it, it fails the pub test pretty obviously if you're making $100,000 a year from pharma. So um, my point is, that was a slight tangent. I'm sure you can get rid of it if it's too tangential. But my point was basically that I agree totally that we have to balance getting access to patients for good drugs as fast as possible, that there are definitely some dud drugs that have got funding. And I I think it gets particularly complex when you have a drug like nivolumab or pembrolizumab that is truly a wonder drug in melanoma or lung cancer or Hodgkin lymphoma that is truly not a wonder drug in many of the other, you know, many of the at least um, tens, almost might even be hundred uh, different indications that they're in, you know, certainly dozens of indications uh, where a lot of those indications, as you say, give a two month benefit. And maybe that two month benefit is with new type one diabetes or new GI toxicity. And so you live two months longer, but much of it's in a hospital. So, so um, I, I agree, it's, it's a balancing act. And um, we have to work really hard to make sure that, that our clinical trials are delivering outcomes that are patient centered. It's funny, isn't it? America leads the world in many things. And um, we've touched on this before. And, you know, what would an Australian Dr. Gone, why would you go and do a, 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 a fellowship on American health policy? But it, it, it just seeps into the rest of the world, doesn't it? You know, the FDA basically lead, lead the world on, on their policy and, and, and we, we all suffer or <laughs> we all, maybe suffer is the wrong word, but we all suffer the consequences. I think we benefit and we suffer yeah. because I think, I think the, is there is no denying that the, the capital in the American healthcare and pharma space does drive development and investment and a lot of these discoveries and make them sensible things for companies to do. You know, a company me, has to make a rational decision about whether invest in a drug or not. And that has to be based on whether, you know, whether you and I agree with it or not politically or philosophically, the way the world works is that, that the majority of drugs, when they're being brought to market, um, uh, depend on a company making a financial decision that they're going to, that their risk is that the reward is going to outweigh the, mm. the, the risk. And, 
And that decision is often, maybe nearly always, not very frequently made based on the market available in the US and on, on a base contingent on FDA approval. And um, so we have them both to be thankful and to be beholden, thankful for and beholden to. Uh, and that's why it's worth engaging with and studying and, and of course, collaborating and learning from our American colleagues who have to work in that, that health system uh, every day. Do you think much about access to sort of lower middle income countries? I mean, one of the one of the, the um, prime examples is haemophilia products in let's say india where there's a massive excess of of hemophilia and 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 basically no treatment um is that is that something that's in your in your area of expertise or shall i just move swiftly on <laughs> no i'm i'm very interested i mean i'm not certainly no hemophilia expert um because mm. i've yet to train at a hemophilia center so i've okay. seen all of two hemophilia patients in my career so i'm not gonna i'm not a hemophilia expert but certainly what i think about with regards to to you know, global oncology or in terms of global policy really, uh, that really bugs me is the idea that, you know, um, enzalutamide, for example, prostate cancer drug, uh, one company has come out and said they could make that for $3 a pill. Um, and yet, you know, it's, you know, $15,000 or, you know, many thousands of dollars. Um, uh, similarly, things like imatinib, ibrutinib, small molecule, pills are very really very cheap to make and the money that they their price actually reflects the patent system that we have in the western world and i i, I think um where we need to go is we need to look at the hiv what hiv has done after you know incredibly hard work both in advocacy and in funding over many years but hiv um has a setup where in many low-income countries uh they have good access to at close to, if not cost price, um, antiretroviral therapy. And yet at the same time, uh, many of the antiretroviral drugs are still very profitable in the US um, for the pharma companies. To me, that is the kind of balance of philosophies of the idea that we can save lives all over the world and still kind of stay true to this patent system that we have in much of the Western world. And I would love to see something similar develop um, for many of at least of our small molecule um, medications where that really would be pretty doable. And I think probably would be doable for, for, for monoclonal antibodies and things as well. CAR-T is, is a trickier question, but, but really I think, you know, we could, there's a long way to go before we, we even, that even becomes a problem. There's a lot of lower hanging fruit than CAR-T in, in low and middle, low income settings. Um, to try and improve the access that people have to, to um, care. And uh, to reference something um, Dr. Gawali um, sort of champions is this idea of a cancer, cancer ground shot. So, you know, many people would have heard of the cancer moonshot in the US, which is the idea of trying to cure cancer, which is fantastic and very worthwhile investing in. And, and I'm, you know, absolutely a champion of, of much of the amazing lab science that is done. But the argument of, behind a cancer ground shot is the idea that you could save as many or certainly very, very many lives by making the care that we already know works available to a much larger uh, population. If you just put aside the assumption that a life in one place is worth more than a life in another place. Um, uh, an assumption championed by um, the late Paul Farmer, who I was fortunate to study with um, last year, the idea that, that everyone is deserving of clinical care, everyone is deserving of access to therapies. And that, you know, for me, the thing that sort of keeps me up at night is the idea that there's no tech, there's no technological, there's no scientific problem there. There's no, if, pharmaceutical companies particularly, but if people wanted to tomorrow give everyone in the world access to imatinib or enzalutamide or many of the other, uh, these other small molecule drugs, then it would be doable and it would be very cost, uh, it would be very financially achievable. Uh, but it is the vested interests and status quo and policy nuances that mean that we're in the situation we're in. Um, and, you know, we haven't even sort of opened the other kind of ones, which is middle-income countries who get a raw deal because they can't access many of the charitable options that low-income countries can access, be it Gates uh, Foundation or the Global Fund. Um, but similarly, they can't afford to pay the prices um, that countries like the US, the UK and Australia and much of Europe pays. Um, uh, and so, you know, they have another, a whole other challenge as well. Talking of expensive drugs... Before we uh, before we were chatting, you um, sent me an email with uh, a couple of things to read, and one of the interesting 
well, one of the very interesting advancements in hematology this year has been polycizumab. So clearly it was already approved for uh, DLB cell in second, third line set settings, but, but polycizumab up front. So this is the um, trial that showed that our, so polar R chip, so <laughs> minus the vincristine, so replacing the polycizumab, replacing vincristine in R-chop with, with polycizumab, um, compared to R-chop, resulted in a PFS benefit, but no lack of, but a lack of overall survival benefit. And there was a big debate, I think, at ASH last year about whether we should change our practice. Um, and the most interesting thing he sent me was a survey of academic centers, in, well, mostly academic centers in the U US, where 174 people said that um, out of 174, sorry, 70% said they would not replace our chart with polar R chip due to insufficient PFS benefit, uh, lack of overall survival benefit and excessive cost. And I think it's really interesting that firstly, um, there's this sort of narrative that the drug companies are using PFS because it allows them to get FDA approval. Um, but if the clinicians aren't willing to use these drugs based on their knowledge of the evidence, then perhaps that, that assumption from the drug companies isn't true. Um, and perhaps it is something they will need to change. You know, they will need to have a, a larger cohort and aim for OS as their primary, primary outcome, which I think would be a good thing. Um, clearly, we've not had much progress in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma for many, many years. Um, so th this, you know, a PFS benefit, is that is that good enough? But, you know, there's so many so many questions that come out of this, and I'm, I think these have been looked at academically. You know, when you do a cost-efficacy analysis, you then have to think about the cost of CAR-T third line or second line, wherever you are in the world, don't you? And the cost of autograft. So you can't just do these very simple cost-efficacy analysis. And I, I read, a, read an abstract on cost-efficacy analysis and understood none of it. You know, <laughs> these, these things are incredibly difficult to understand. Um, I guess my question is, um, firstly, would you use polycizumab? Let's say you were treating a family member for lymphoma. Would you want, would you want them to have polycizumab based on this study? And secondly, is this something that will replace our shop later? Do you think it's something that will show OS benefit? Do you think it's something that works um, in a, in a, in a, at a sort of a national level, maybe Australia, UK, US? You'd imagine that the US might start using it, but compared to Vincristine, you know, this is $150,000 worth of drug. You know, it's, it's a massive, massive outlay. Um, I know there's loads of questions there and I rambled, but tell me your thoughts. A lot of questions there, absolutely. So... Uh, so, I think I'll start with your question: Would I use um, polar chip in uh, first-line DLBCL? And I, I'm particularly like the name of the elderly uh, polar polatuzumab study, which is Polar Bear, um, which is up there with uh, my favourite trial names. But um, I think the answer depends if you're asking me as a clinician or asking me as a health policy person or health policy wonk. And and the answer to that, the reason for that is 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 sort of nuanced. The first thing is that in diffuse large, BL, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, DLBCL, an aggressive lymphoma, PFS, progression-free survival, is a much better surrogate for overall survival than in many most other malignancies. So the vast majority of malignancies, PFS is a, if not bad, terrible surrogate for overall survival. That is, when you follow the trials that have shown a PFS benefit out until their overall survival data is mature and reads out, you find that those that showed a PFS benefit didn't necessarily, it wasn't a good indicator when you look, follow the trials later that they would subsequently show an overall survival benefit. Whereas in DLBCL, it's not perfect, but it's much better than it is in follicular lymphoma, CLL, myeloma, uh, and, and most solid organ um, tumors. Not that there's necessarily tumor specific data for all different tumors, but there is for DLBCL and, um, and it's much better than your average tumor. Pardon me. So, so that, that that that's the first point is that that, that PFS is a, is a decent predictor in DLB. So not perfect, but decent. The second question is, you know, what does the real deal look like for patients? And my reading of the data, there was still about thirty percent of people uh, who are probably more expert than I who thought that polar chip was more toxic than than RCHOP. But my reading of the data is that their toxicity was pretty similar especially neuropathy, which is one of the main concerns with polituzumab. Um, they did get GCSF, which is, you know, worth noting that you don't necessarily need to do that in people with RCHOP, but that's pretty minor toxicity for curative therapy. And, um, and you know, if I, um, 
I'm a young person and I want to return to my life, or I'm an old person with only one shot at therapy, then the idea of if that PFS benefit does hold out at being a 6% increase in um, ideally in cure, um, uh, which it could well do because the, the, such a high proportion of DLBCL relapses occur early, then yeah, why, why would you not take the extra 6% given that there's no toxicity cost? You know, this is different to looking at something like brintuximab in upfront Hodgkin or ibrutinib, adding ibrutinib to, to BR and mantle cell where there's clearly a toxicity cost. Here, it's m much less clear to me that there is a toxicity cost. And so if you are asking me purely, if it didn't cost any more money and I'm the clinician and you're the patient or you're the clinician and I'm the patient, do I want polar chip? I'd say to me, based on the data so far, yes. However, if you ask me as a health policy person or as a health technology assessment body, that question becomes vexed because, you know, yes, it's $150,000 US dollars um, uh, for one patient's course. But if you actually calculate the number needed to treat, um, uh, then it ends up being closer to $1.5, $1.6 million to cure one extra patient. And, you know, there's a very interesting um, and well done cost effectiveness analysis by um, Sweta Kambampati, who's just finished her fellowship at City of Hope in just near LA and started as a faculty there. Um, really well done cost effectiveness analysis, um, just published in Blood. And it finds that polar chip is cost effective for DLBCL. And it's, you know, in part because of exactly what you talked about, that, that you avoid second or third line therapy. Second or third line therapy is CAR-T, which is heinously expensive. And therefore, polatuzumab is only a little bit heinously expensive. And so you can trade a few polars for one CAR and you still come out on top as a health system. But obviously that depends on your access to CAR and a whole range of other variables as you know, cost effectiveness analysis analyses do. So I think the ideal world would be one in which drug companies match the price to the incremental benefit. Uh, that's not the world we live in, but that's the sort of a world where we could, we could move towards. And so when it comes to drug price negotiation in countries like uh, Australia, the, the, the HTA body can bring those data to the drug company and say, look, we think there's a benefit. Your, your standard of care therapy was very cheap. That benefit is not huge can you give us a good deal? And we don't really know what happens in those negotiations because they happen in private. But, but essentially, I, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think that polytuzumab is a very tricky question to answer at a population level, but, but, and we'll see what the, the data show as they mature. The other thing I um, wanted to comment on in terms of the survey particularly is that I was kind of, buoyed a bit by the fact that 70% of academic lymphoma clinicians were not yet convinced by the, the polar data. And I think that, you know, shows that people are thinking critically about what about trial endpoints and about trial results. I think that, you know, the first thing to note is that 30% of people changing their practice is still incredibly profitable for the drug company. So it's still a big win for them in terms of that if and I suspect when that gets FDA approved. Um, and um, the second thing to note is that I'm, I suspect there's this weird idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasy in the US that, that many outside the US might not know about, where if you're a private oncologist who, uh, or hematologist who has an infusion center attached to your clinic, then the infusion center gets a payment from Medicare that's 6% of the cost of the drug. So, you'll quickly work out that if you prescribe RCHOP, 6% of you know, $7,000 is very different to 6% of $150,000. And so if your whole practice changes its uh, prescribing behavior, that stands to make, even where there's not a direct conflict of interest that is the pharma company paying you money, there's this added layer where the, the, the um, for infusional drugs, there is an incentive for hematologists and oncologists in the US to prescribe more expensive novel therapies generally because of the 6% reimbursement that their infusion centers get. So I suspect if you surveyed private oncologists out in the real sort of wider world and instead of in our like nice ivory academic survey sample that we um, got, then you might find that number was a bit higher. I also rambled, sorry.
No, it's uh, it's it's nice to hear someone else rumble for a change. It's uh, it's a good thing. Um, Adi, um, I, I just want to ask you one last thing, and um, we, you touched on Bit earlier. Um, so mm. I'm working in a lab at the moment, basically working on Bit. So it's um, nice that um, nice that you've had some thoughts on that and seen that in Australia actually yourself and you as a mm. subject reg. Um, you've written a nice article about Bit um, and the history and what it means. We had some interesting conversations fairly recently about it what you know what it means for the for the what these kind of things mean for the developing world and whether adenoviral vector vaccines are going to be consigned to you know the the the, the heap of drugs that we won't ever use again because of this random very rare side effect that we see in western populations whereas the balance of risks for people in in Africa or other places is, is, is entirely different. And my real concern is that wonderful technology will be lost because um, it can have such a, a great benefit in, in the developing world, but not, but perhaps not in the Western world. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that. Are you, are you worried that we're going to lose this technology? I think it's a fascinating question. And I think there are a lot of challenging kind of concepts built into you like a multi-part, a multi-part question. Um, but I'm not super worried that the adenoviral vector is going to disappear. You know, I don't think I don't think the general public is on board with the idea of getting a booster every three months. And I think that's a whole one-hour podcast in itself to talk about the evidence behind fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh COVID boosters, uh, mRNA boosters. But it's it's I think it will evolve. It may evolve that there may be advantages to having you know different types of vectors and there may be disadvantages to different types of vectors mm. the other thing i think is very tricky is uh, never before or very rarely before have we rolled out a any therapy to such a large group of people all at once and so you know the idea that such a rare side effect and i found that patients found it really really hard especially, you know, I felt quite sorry for patients who'd had a previous clotting event of some sort, because, you know, the idea that, that, you know, one type of clot doesn't predispose you to a different type of clot is really a complex idea that many clinicians struggle with, let alone, let alone patients. And I, I found those conversations very difficult to have with many patients, especially when our policy said, sorry, but you don't get an mRNA vaccine. Um, and so I think... Um, I think the the challenge with that was that we, because the denominator was so big, we gave hundreds of or millions of people this thing at the same time. We saw this very rare thing become quite predominant, and I think I think a it will will survive that a because of its advantage, b because of its availability, c because of its cost, d because it's it's of its sort of tried and true nature and other things. But but um, I think it was very challenging because people struggle to perceive the idea and understand, and I'm no different, the idea that, you know, you, the idea of, of um, your plane falling out of the skies is probably higher than the idea that you're going to die from Viet. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think the kind of basic type lab research will also contribute to that in that we will be able to better predict and treat it and so better identify who is going to be at risk of it. You know, one of the, my favourite lessons from Viet so far is this idea of sort of counterintuitive things in medicine. I, I heard a fantastic lecture at Grand Rounds from Andreas Greinacher, in, um, uh, who's done, a, who's led a lot of the, the great work in VIS. And this was a few months ago, and he was talking about how he thought and showed us some beautiful data that heparin was in fact the anticoagulant of choice in VIS. And of course we spent, you know, I'm sure you did too, many sleepless on-call nights running around with bivalirudin protocols or whatever your non-heparin anticoagulant of choice is out of this huge panic that heparin was going to make things worse. And the irony being that it may all turn out that heparin would have made things better. And I think that that is reinforces once again, this idea that we keep coming back to in, in why do we have to do these big expensive cumbersome clinical trials? Well, because we honestly, you know, doesn't matter how good your intuition is, doesn't matter how good your physiology is, doesn't matter how good the science says something should be, or your 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 kind of first principles say something should be. Sometimes it's it's not not just wrong, but you're, it's actually the opposite of of what you thought it would be. And and that's one of my favourite kind of take home points from from bit. 
you're saying that it's like hearing my own thoughts echoed back at me. Yeah. But so the body's full of so many, it's so many moving parts. It's impossible to predict, you know. I think the thing I learned on reflection from VIT is it's really interesting to think about the general population's understanding of risk and whether they can weigh up risk. Actually, in the UK, I think 85 or so percent of people had a vaccine. Um, I'm not sure what the figures were sort of after VIT, whether that dropped or not. But that's pretty encouraging, actually. Um, whether that's because they've got a reasonable understanding of risk or whether they're very engaged and like to follow public health policy or just basically wanted to get to the pub. I, I, don't, I don't know which one of those is true. Um, but I Probably think both. Yeah, all of them, yeah. Um, there's definitely work to do in educating people on risk. And, and you know, when we consent people for we can send people for chemotherapy and things. We probably don't give them the right percentages and the right data and the right things to make that fully informed decision. We call it, it's basically informed consent. I mean, fully informed consent would probably be understanding every single trial that's ever been done, wouldn't it? Under all the, under all the observational data. Um, but certainly, yeah, the thing I took out of it was one that, that hypothetical, that, that sort of philosophical question about whether, whether the third world or the, I'm not supposed to call it that, my the low, lower middle economic countries will will suffer. But secondly, that 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 understanding of you know risk and how how people perceive risk because the risk of death from severe COVID was far far higher than this, and these are ex- exceptionally um, exceptionally effective vaccines. Anyway, I, I don't normally have the last word, um, so I don't want to have the, word, the last word. So so what's next? How long are you in Boston for? So hopefully another year before I return to my um, clinical training. That's sort of, um, I'm lucky in that I have missed clinical work. So I have have not missed some of the tougher aspects of working in a public health system, which I think are similar. Having watched um, This Is Going To Hurt, I think is similar between the NHS and um, our public health system. Um, But I have very much missed the patient interactions and very much missed the clinical work. And um, so, yeah, so... uh, another year of working on health policy um, with Portal um, at Harvard Medical School, hopefully answer and ask some interesting uh, haematology-related policy questions, um, then return to the uh, clinical world and hopefully be able to balance those two kind of spheres of interest and use one to inform the other, use the kind of clinical sphere, clinical observations, working with patients. You know, I don't think there's anything that could replace being a haematology reg uh, during VIT, you know, that is a, that's a, a pretty wild uh, ride. And uh, I think the ins- insights that you get at a policy level from those clinical exposures and clinical experiences are invaluable. And I think that gives us a responsibility to advocate um, for those things. And I suppose one final example of that is, is at the moment our bone marrow donor registry for allografts in Australia has completely uh, been neglected by, you know, the government in terms of its funding and is really uh, struggling. And I'm trying my hardest to work with bureaucrats and politicians to, to try and advocate and to help advocate for it. You know, the, its CEO um, is doing an amazing job of trying to do that, but is not getting a lot of love. And that's the sort of thing that most members of the public and most members of the health policy world would have no idea about. And many um, hematologists or, or, or people working in hematology might not have the political strategy now or the time, especially if they're working as full-time clinicians, um, to be chasing after bureaucrats and, and trying to do that. So that's sort of one example of where I'm trying to combine those two passions and hope to continue doing that in the future. Fantastic. Well, that's been really interesting, Eddie. Thank you so much for giving up your evening to uh, to um, chat with me. It's uh, 12 o'clock here and 9 o'clock with you, so um, that's really great. Um, I wish you all the best. Um, I will, if I can cope with bringing two small children to the Southern Hemisphere at any point, I will look you up. Um, and what look I'd like to do to is I'd love to get you back on once you've sort of completed your work in, in Harvard and uh, we'll have a chat about it and, uh, and touch base again. That'd be brilliant. Thanks so much. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.